Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambutassa Uttang dhammang sankhang namasami I was saying this morning uh, the way of these teachings that we have are our teachings for for using, right? They're not they're not just positions. And some of these teachings are very rather strange, like anatta, not self, is a very very difficult teaching to get your head around because it, it certainly there is presence and the way my coffee tasted is different than the way your tea tasted. So there is individuality and the memories that come through my experience are different than the memories that come through your experience and so on and so forth. Your physical experience right now is different than my physical experience. So there's difference and there's individuality and there's habits and patterns and so on and so forth. So when, when we have this teaching of non-self, it, it almost sounds like there's no one here. But there is presence, there is consciousness. So what that teaching is trying to help us with is how to realize what the Buddha realized. And the Buddha's realization was of the unconditioned, the uncreated, as I always, you know, I love those phrases, Nibbana, the deathless, peace, the island, and so on. So the, the, the Buddha has this profound realization and he says it's possible for us to to see notice realize this ourselves and then what he does he lays out a teaching which addresses the problem of our misunderstanding we're kind of looking at stuff in the wrong way and so when we look at things in the wrong way we suffer and in that suffering because we have desire we want to get out of the suffering it's natural. So as long as we have desire, and as long as that desire isn't really fulfilled, it'll keep coming up again and again and again each time we see things in the wrong way. So even though we might feel satisfied for some brief moment, we have that for a while, and then it changes again and desire rises again. So the Buddha says looking at desire is very important. Understanding is very, very important. And pursuing it and chasing it all the time with, that, with ignorance will just lead to frustration and a sense of, this doesn't work. Or a continual need to distract and do what everyone does to try to stay happy. So the whole teaching then is very mature in the sense that it says, you know, if you, if you suffer, you don't understand, you have to, you have to look at life more, more wisely. You look at your life, consider what you're doing. So then, obviously, the Buddha lays out just the basic requisites of being able to look at your life or look at your mind is to live a life of morality and generosity, to be a good person. So if you're not doing that, it's going to be pretty hard to look at your own mind. So we're doing that already. We're a generous community and we live morally. So we've got that kind of basis for that. And we help each other and we have minds which realize it's important to forgive and to be compassionate and so on and so forth. So, we, so we're very fortunate. We have, a, we have a foundation for enlightenment. Like if I had been sent to Vietnam uh, as a... You know, my parents were refugees from Eastern Europe, and my dad almost... My dad was going to come to the States, and uh, he spoke English. He learned it in university in Riga, but he couldn't get into the States because... If I have it right, someone said he was a communist. Someone who didn't like him, another Latvian. And then he applied to Canada. Canada believed the story, we came to Toronto. So I could have got drafted into the Vietnam War. And if I would have had to be on the ground killing people, you wonder, you know, my mind might have been so messed up. There's no way I would have had the equipment and capacity to look at my own mind because it might just be so overwhelming and so painful and so horrible. 
if I had done horrible things, and and horrible things were done to me or whatever. And so, so we're we're very fortunate that we have, you know, we have sort of normal neuroses, just your average, most of us kind of garden variety greed, hatred, and delusion. <laughs> you need a little bit, right? So we we are in a good position that we can reflect. We have maturity. We have a sense of honesty. You know, we, we do take, when we suffer, we, do, we don't just blame. We say, ah, what am I doing here? Why am I suffering? So these are, these are wonderful, wonderful qualities that we all uh, have for some reason, some good reason, developed and, and, uh, and are a part of. So always when we talk about these higher teachings, like anatta, there's the assumption that people are living with those basic uh, understandings. And so if, if you meet someone who is just caught up in immoral action, then as a Buddhist, you try to get them into a more moral path. Stop killing, stop getting drunk, or whatever it might be. So it's pretty hard to teach someone who is you know, caught up in, in hedonism and in sensuality. Maybe it's difficult to teach them anatta. Better to just say, well, what, you know, it wouldn't be nicer if you were more sober and less violent. So anyway, there's us um, who have, have this, this goodness in place. And because we have these good qualities in place, we can look at our conscious experience not in terms of me and you, but in terms, as, as I like to call it, stream of consciousness, or the five khandhas, or mind-body experience. So now, rather than referencing, I am angry, we're always encouraged to say, look at the flow of consciousness, and observe anger as an object. So that's what I suggested this morning. You look at a mood as a mood, as an object of mind, rather than always identify personally with the mood and say, I am this and I am that, and you're in this and you're in that. So this is also a maturity of consciousness that is able to step back and look in that way. A person who is just caught up in blaming and believing and all of that, they tend just to be believe it all and just be constantly caught up into it. Now we have some reflective capacity and we now are observing stream of consciousness. And then in stream of consciousness, what we are asked to consider is that the feelings and emotions and bodily sensations that come and go in consciousness are natural and that they are dependently originated, that they depend on causes and conditions. And that because they depend on causes and conditions, there's no essential person who's doing this. And so what Theravada Buddhism does, rather than say, I am thinking, we say, thought arises dependent on causes. So dependent origination is what we use to answer the question, well, who's doing this? Or what's doing, and who's doing, if, if there is no, no essential person who's operating this whole business, who's doing it? And we say, well, no one's doing it, it's just the flow of dependent origination, causality. Right? So who's doing the growing of the, the sunflowers? The same way, the growing of the sunflowers, and Andrew put them in the vase, and planted the seeds, the sun did this business, fertilizer did its business, and so on and so forth. So the reason the flowers are here is because of a whole series of causes and conditions, causes and conditions, and causes and conditions. So the flowers are dependently originated. And in the same way, as I was saying this morning, the sense of I that arises is not really a fixed person, who is doing something, but dependently originated perceptions of self that come and go according to causes and conditions. And this is what the teaching asks us to actually verify. So, first of all, you think, well, that's interesting, but I don't believe it. Okay. Or you believe it. Believe it or disbelieve it, it's not going to really liberate the mind until you start to really meditate and look at the whole sense of, uh, selfhood and, and personhood and me, me and you, in, in this objective way. Again, so I was suggesting this morning when you get a, a mood to 
you know, comes into the mind where selfhood is very strong, selfhood manifests through thought. So I remember something that I uh, should have done last week, and then my mind says, oh, I should have done that. I must remember to do that. That's okay. You know, one, one can note it down. But the whole sense of a me having to do this, and I should have done that, and can go on for 10, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours. It might be regret, might be remorse. So the teaching says, well, awaken to that. So we're asked to really put a lot of energy into present moment awareness. And this is different than planning your life. Planning your life you have to do too. But now we're practicing flow of consciousness, flow of uh, conditions, and we're trying to stay present in the moment to the flow of events. In normal life we have to plan and, and we have to figure out if there's gas in the car. So that's the kind of functional life we have. But now as meditators we're saying, in this flow, okay, in this flow, we observe, or there is observation. Because the question you eventually ask, well, who is the observer? If there is no self, who is the observer? Well, first of all, you start to, to just trust, just observe. Right? Just observe, okay. Now, who's the observer? Just observe. Or, but yeah, well, no, just observe. <laughs> so you get out of the kind of intellection and just do it. And what you're doing is watching flow. And then the suggestion is watch flow as dependently originated flow rather than me. So if you get that kind of idea in your head, okay, you watch. And then if you're really attentive, you'll notice that when you have a memory, maybe, maybe you have a memory of, of like when my mom died. The memory of her dying was, was very powerful, obviously. What else could it be? And so in the first day, two days, three days, three weeks, the constant memories, right? of mom's dying, and me being there, a me being there. And then the commentary, should have done this, I should have done that, da 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 But as long as I said, oh, this is memory, then I could see that that sense of me should do this, I should have done that, if I have only done this, if I, I saw that's just a thought conditioned by memory, which has powerful emotional components. And as long as I, I, I paid attention to that, the memories were as they were, and not really problematic. Not pretty, but not problematic. And they faded and they changed. But what remained was awareness. Now, if I would have really believed in the, that thinking, like especially, as, as I often say, that when I talk about my mom's dying, there was something I did three days before she died, which was a medical mistake. I didn't do it on purpose, but it caused her extra pain for two days or one day. And when I realized that and I rearranged things, I felt horrible. You can imagine how, you know, you just feel horrible. And the whole, you know, the whole self-disparaging construct of my mind just started to explode. And I had to be really careful to say, no, this is memory. You, you did your best. Because my, the self-view, and that, that whole self-view, it's not like a person, it's a habit. It's a conditioned response which arises according to causes and conditions. But the awareness is not a conditioned response. Awareness knows that. And, and, and once one gets that perspective of awareness of change, awareness of dependent origination, then more and more the, the self-identity with these things falls away because it's just thought. There is personal experience, there is individual experience, but the whole sense of that I am essentially these emotions and these memories and this body and all of that, that sense of I am this falls away. And it's seen more and more from a peaceful perspective of awareness, a still perspective of awareness. But still you get the question, well, yeah, who's being aware? Right? Who's doing this practice and who's doing this meditation? Well, that's when your mind's a bit more quiet and that's when you start to cast awareness on awareness. And that's really interesting. Where now, you know, you, you have enough samadhi, you have enough presence, you haven't robbed anyone and uh, done anything really crazy, so your mind's not confused with remorse and so on, and, and you've got enough food on the table or whatever, whatever it requires to live in this planet, and then you have enough stillness to see, well, who's doing this practice? Who's doing this meditation? And you, you look at the looker, or you're aware of awareness itself, and that takes you to the, to the realization of emptiness. Because when 
when you have the kind of presence of mind to do that, and you have stillness enough, and, and you allow awareness to know awareness, you realize there is consciousness, but there's no person doing consciousness. And that's the experience of emptiness. And that's a very important doorway, we would say, a very important doorway into the realization of Nibbana, into the realization of the unconditioned or, or the transcendent. And now this is not something that you can figure out with thought, because when you figure it out with thought, you'll always get a sense of self. Well, who's, who's meditating? I am. And that's just thought. As soon as you look at that, I am, I don't know, like, like if you just do them now, I am. Blank. You get a blank, right? So there is consciousness, there is presence, and there is movement. Now, our self-identity is with the movement, and what the, the teaching is suggesting, well, why don't you just be the awareness itself? If I say, I am awareness, or I, I am essentially awareness, the I am is not necessary. It's just, just a thought, just a whatever. So you can begin to just trust in awareness, and then you see more and more that the, the self-making, I-making, my-making, is simply a thinking process dependently originated. It comes and goes according to causes and conditions. If you, let's say, if you, like we're planning our katina, so when I sit down in meditation, what comes up is plans of katina. What else could come up? It's dependently originated. I'm not planning Ajahn Pasano's katina, and I'm not planning your breakfast. Well, obviously, so this there is there is an individual flow of consciousness which is natural. It's a flow of nature, just as these flowers are in the flow of nature. So that 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 awareness then is is something that is also has a component of allowing things to be as they are, which is, which is our whole reflection on metta, on metta bhavana, or goodwill, that, that the flow of experience is natural, there's nothing right or wrong with it. With body and speech, we try not to hurt each other, we try to do good things, but the good, bad, and the ugly are, are all part of it, and it's okay. That, because awareness does, doesn't get scarred by that. So the the beauty of this is that the heart is, can be very open to life's experiences because they're all okay. They're not right or wrong. They are as they are. So if you think about the most horrible thing that has arisen in your consciousness in the past year, the most wretched thought or whatever, it just came because of something. You were get sick or someone was really rude to you or, or whatever. That you're not essentially a rude person or essentially whatever. You're, not, you're none of that. These things come according to cause and conditions. We see with adults who have been, you know, we, I, people come to the monastery whose parents have been brutal towards them. And it's horrible what they have to experience. But it's not them. It's just that the, the psyche, the, the psychological makeup of the whole flow of consciousness has been conditioned in this regretful and horrible and painful way but it's not really them they're not essentially bad people it's just those personality characteristics arise in that way so this kind of reflection on the sense of self is where you get a feeling for why the Buddha's saying well anything that begins and ends and is dependently origination can't be a person like person can't but logically but you have to see that you have to observe that so that's what we do we we try to observe the very sense of the doer when your mind gets quiet you get well who is doing this and then it's awareness knowing awareness and it always takes you to silence and if you can be with that and not demand an answer the mind, you, you see oh it's empty and yet there's no one knowing it's empty it's just empty it's just the knowing and this, this teaching around, like, a, there's a teaching that is not much used, actually, in Theravada. It's used more in Mahayana. It's called the Three Doorways Teaching. And I was talking to Shanti at breakfast <laughs> about the Three Doorways Teaching. And um, it, it, do you know Thomas Merton? You've heard of him? Thomas Merton, the great Christian monk, who very, very unfortunately died while taking a shower in Bangkok. He stepped into a... There was a, a short circuit on a fan in, in, a, in a shower, 
and he got electrocuted, which is a huge tragedy. Anyway, Thomas Merton, when he um, finally got permission from his abbot to, to travel, he'd been very cloistered in the Trappist tradition. He had always wanted to go to Asia, and so he, he traveled to Thailand, and, and he met in, in India, met the Dalai Lama, met Katipalo, met Walpole Rahula, met the Karmapa, all these, these, these very famous Buddhist masters. And uh, he went to Polnaruwa, which is a famous ancient monastic site in, 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 in Sri Lanka. And Polnaruwa, if, I don't know if you know it, but it has these fabulous uh, rock face carvings. And the most famous is a, a reclining Buddha that must be 50 feet long. It, it, you know, it's enormous, right? It's eno- it's, and it's beautifully done. And he has this kind of epiphany, in a very Buddhist sense, and his, his whole language is Buddhist. But you can see that he is he's really beyond traditions. He knows how to use a Christian tradition and how to use the Buddhist tradition. But in it, he talks about these, this sort of, this teaching on the three doorways. And this teaching on the three doorways is, is perhaps it sounds a bit esoteric, but what else we got to do, right? <laughs> So it comes from a deep contemplation of the three characteristics. As you know, in Buddhism, we contemplate that anything which has a beginning has an ending. And this is, of course, the contemplation of anicca. So anything which starts will end. Anything which is born will die. So this situation now begins and ends. The day begins and ends. The season begins and ends. This body begins and ends and so on. And anything that begins and ends is impermanent. Because it's impermanent, don't seek the transcendent in that. Don't seek Nibbana in that. Don't seek realization in that which is impermanent. And what the Three Doorways teaching says that when you contemplate a Nietzsche really profoundly, you keep bringing that up, this is uncertain, the doorway of the signless arises or the insight into the signless. Now, sign in this sense is like quality. So if you start to really, you you contemplate the quality of your worldly experience, hot, cold, good, bad, like, dislike, big, small, salty, not salty, sweet, not sweet, you know, the whole sense of qualities, right? And and that all, all our thoughts, in our emotions and our bodily feelings and our relationships and our car and our insurance policy and all the rest of it has qualities to it. It's good, bad, or whatever. And these qualities draw us with desire and craving. And the contemplation of Anisha, with all qualities, if, if, if everything is changing, then any sign, any quality cannot be the deathless. So even the idea of peace you say, well, the deathless is peaceful, which it, that there is a deep peace. Even that could be a trap, because when you feel peaceful, you go, oh, that's it. And then you don't feel peaceful. No, that's not it. So awareness has no quality. So if you contemplate that deeply, the tendency to look for a sign, to look for a quality, which isn't there already, to look for something like, a, like hot, cold, or whatever, good, bad, peace, not peace, or reject the quality, anger, fear, whatever, that, that movement out into sense experience, that falls away because you realize, well, it has to be signless. Signless. So what's signless? That, that, and the mind comes to a kind of peace in that way. Well, what's signless? That, and if I, if I contemplate, well, signless can't be out there because everything out there, away, as it were, is sign. It has a sign. It's red, it's blue, I like, I don't like. And the mind starts to have a sense of dispassion towards signs. When we're young, when we're just into signs. Wow, isn't that amazing? And that's incredible and holy mackerel and all of that kind of mindset. And it's great. So on. And we talk in signs. That was a great meal and so on and so forth. But a great meal is not Nibbana. So the signless. Now, that, that is a kind of way where you settle into the present. And what is signless? It's awareness. You, and, and you, you, you know, that's a kind of contemplative thing you do. You say, well, 
okay, there's the, reali- there's the kind of realization of the sign. What's sign? So as your mind looks for something, well, anything I look for, it's just looking for a sign and signless. And the mind settles back into awareness. And the same with emptiness. So with anatta, so we have anicca dukkha anatta. With anatta, the reflection is that anything which is dependently originated can't be a fixed person. It can't be a, like a fixed entity, a me. Although the sense of me comes and goes. And as this exercise I was suggesting is if you do that, if you, if you have the calmness of mind to allow awareness to observe awareness, you realize it's empty. There's emptiness. And that emptiness is a doorway. And again, a, a awareness has, it's not a personal thing. It seems that way, but when you try to find a person in awareness, like right now, I can't, I can't find a person. I can't find Viridamo. It's just such. It's just like this. It's just aware. So that contemplation of emptiness is a doorway. So is it doorway of emptiness? The doorway of signlessness? And then dukkha, the third characteristic. So in classic Buddhism, we say that, that the characteristics of our mind-body experience are threefold. And tilakana, the three characteristics. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Right? And dukkha is the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness. And dukkha can be used to, just to, to refer to abject suffering, like pain and so on. But it also refers to the fact of unsatisfactoriness in terms of nibbana, in terms of the unconditioned. And so the characteristic of unsatisfactoriness leads to the doorway of desirelessness. That desire, if we're looking at, like, what we're talking about, tanha, desire is always for experience. Uh, aspiration for nibbana, we would say, is something which can be corrupted into looking for an experience. But that aspiration, we say, is chanda, is like a, like a passion to realize something. But it cannot be done through the desire for objects. So when you really contemplate that no object ever fulfills you, and you really do that, you're like you... You know, you buy a new car and you get buyer's regret or... Like I, I just finished building this desk, really lovely oak desk for the library. And I popped it in a library. First, first thought was, doesn't fit. You know, I spent half a year building this damn thing. <laughs> and you know, like, ah. Oh. But I know that's just what the mind does. I mean, it's, it's a lovely piece of work. But the, and everyone says, great, 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 great. So, but my mind said, oh, doesn't fit. But I just knew that's what the mind does. But, but also I contemplate that, ah, yeah, that all conditions have the characteristic of dukkha. You know, they're unsatisfactory. They can never really, really fulfill you. And what you're doing is you're not just laying that as a kind of philosophy on your own, like, like a, a wet blanket Buddhist philosophy onto experience. You're actually noting it. So like this whole idea of in Western culture of buyer's remorse, I think that's great. That's, that's really good dhamma. But what do we do when you get buyer's remorse? You buy another one. <laughs> you don't really like, hey, hey, wait a minute. The, the, the other one's going to be the same. So when, when there is that sense of this is, this is disappointing, say, or unsatisfactory, then rather than blame yourself or the situation or the other person or whatever, no, no, all... All things which change inevitably lead to disappointment. The body, relationships, or whatever. And if you take that on board, then you contact, oh, well, then it can't be, Nibbana cannot be realized through my pursuit of desire. And you, you bring up the word desirelessness. That's a very powerful word. Like if you sit down and meditate, pop that word into your practice, desirelessness. It's really, really powerful. Because as meditators, we're always trying to get enlightened, aren't we? <laughs> and we're always failing. <laughs> Sitting there getting enlightened. <laughs> because we're so programmed to get something, to become something, to own something, right? And, and so how do we make effort from desirelessness? How do we make effort from emptiness? How do we make effort from silencelessness? 
So those we say are the three doorways to, to Nibbana, but they're not really doorways. They're, they're ways of talking. They're kind of doorways which kind of, it's like you open the door and you find out you've always been there. <laughs> it's a, it's a difficult, difficult kind of imagery. So the teachings of Anicca Dukkanatta can, can, be, can be just sort of Buddhist, Buddhist belief 101. Yeah, yeah, I believe in change and so on. But to actually have a, have a mind which really observes like uh, unsatisfactoriness, attentive, then that whole, the whole idea of desirelessness becomes very profound. And then that idea informs, or that insight, say, I would say, not just an idea, that insight begins to inform your very, the way you make effort, you know, your attitudes to your practice. So then when you get like a difficult state of mind come up and you pop in desirelessness, that's very instructive. Because now, well, it can't be, it can't be this or anything else. It can't be another kind of experience. So then you're able to be with difficult experiences from desirelessness. And that's a doorway back into the silence of the mind. If you're pursuing some experience and you say, signless. And when I say like signless or emptiness, that always brings me back to the present moment, to non-self, to awareness, to suchness. One of the words we find in the text is uh, the way the, the Buddha referred to himself apparently was the Tathagata or the such gone or the such realized. And, and um, Tathagata, suchness, is a very simple idea. It's, it's like this, Ajahn Sumedho's phrase, suchness. And then waiting and resting in that, why is that difficult? Because of desire, because of selfing because of me and my making, and because our, our sense experience and our emotional experience is not pretty, it's not beautiful, it's not consistently happy, it's dualistic. And that dualism itself is okay, and then we can do things which are helpful. So if you think about, so what in the, in the conditioned realm would be helpful for you to stay in the present moment? So we're not dismissing the conditioned realm, we say, well, what... What in all this conditioned stuff is going to be helpful? Good friendships, a good diet, uh, working out a bit. You know, that's going to be helpful, isn't it? At a more, a more immediate level in terms of emotions, empathy. Empathy is, is, the, is the paramount emotional attitude which is not selfish. And empathy isn't feeling pity for someone. Like Empathy is like connection. Whereas alienation is like fear, anger, greed, those kind of things. So, so we stress the, the Brahma-viharas. They're like a foundation. Forgiveness, generosity, they're all attitudes of mind or ways of being which put down, which are sort of very much against the, the seduction of desire. Like generosity has its own inherent happiness in it, because it is uplifting and, and the appreciation of beauty and the appreciation of people's suffering and wanting to help them. These are all the foundation for enlightenment. And as I always say, they're the method, they're not the goal. So we do have a method, and that method it exists in this kind of dualistic structure we have. It's still conditioned, it's still dependently originating. But the more we do it, the more we, we can settle into the present moment without desire. And we all know that. Like if I've, if I've done something from an attitude of generosity and compassion and forgiveness and so on, there's less desire there. But if I function from uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, the desire is really, really strong. So we do things. We do, we do meditation all the time. But it's not to become. It's more to return to a stillness of being which is receptive, attentive, and the doors are open. And so we say the doors to the deathless are open for those who have attention, for those who can listen. I don't know, maybe that sounds kind of a bit uh, esoteric or whatever, but I think it just points to a more deeper sense of what the contemplative life is, that it's this kind of inquiry which isn't just intellectual. It's an inquiry based on, on, on these, these kind of basic principles. Any questions? 
questions around that or comments for anyone? Yes. I wonder if I'm confused because the idea of uh, emptiness and there's no doer um, and dependent rumination, uh-huh. does that lead to the conclusion that free will is really self free? The idea that I have a choice and I own that action because I have free will. The way Buddhism approaches that, well, the way I approach that, sorry. (laughs) Like, I speak for Buddhism. (laughs) That's a bit over the top. Um, Is that when, when the sense of the doer falls away, um, there, there is, the sense of separation is not there, and the response to the situation comes from the situation. So it's not a matter of there's a person who has free will or not free will. It's more that action is no longer separate. It's not, it's not divided. And the action is appropriate and spontaneous because it's no longer invested with greed, hatred, and delusion, but rather it's functioning from a kind of loving awareness, say, and that it can respond to life according to the needs of life. Uh, moment by moment. So personality can arise. Like Ajahn Ch- I often talk about that. Ajahn Chah, when, when we sat with him in, under his kuti and, and there was nothing happening, it was very empty. You just feel like there's no one here. It's just this kind of vast, silent feeling. The man was there. He was sitting there. And again, where would you go? It wasn't like that. It was, he was there. But there wasn't a person. And, and it's hard to explain that. And then someone would come in from the village and have a question. All of a sudden, he'd be ebullient. You know, like a person arose. A personality arose according to the needs of that. And then, you know, the, and then he would give instruction. The person said, and, and, and then if there was no one around, all of a sudden, it was, where's he gone? <laughs> and it, was, it, was, it wasn't spooky. It was... Uh, well, it was fascinating in one way, but also you could see, well, there was no reason to be a person. Personality didn't have to exist. It arose as a kind of compassion. So Ajahn Sumida once asked Lone Paul, why are you so charismatic? He said, oh, it's my hook. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, a, 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 like, it was almost like compassion and wisdom arose through personality characteristics for the situation, for the goodness of the situation. It was like, Love and action, I suppose. I mean, that, that's maybe a bit sentimental, but like Lompoliam, the teacher that was here with us last, was it last year? Two years ago, last year, last year. And who's very, very, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't evoke much. They're very silent. He has a different personality to the Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah is much more charismatic. Lompoliam is very, very silent. And, and like, you just be there and, and like, is anyone here? <laughs> and, and yet, if you don't get intimidated by that, uh, there's deep silence there. And yet he can give fantastic Dhamma talks and give great answers. Uh, I asked him a question. The question was around uh, his own enlightenment experiences, and which are in that book, No Worries. I think I've recommended people read that. His biography is very interesting. And in that, you know, he says this, this experiences of enlightenment happened in, I think, 1969, and his mind hasn't moved since. No doubt, no anger, since 1969. Read it. No worries. It's on the web. And you're, wow. So that's what's possible. So then you read the biography of Cha, and then in that biography... A uh, palmist reads Ajahn Chah's hand, and he looks at Lone Paul. He says, Lone Paul, you, you've got a lot of anger. <laughs> and Lone Paul says, yeah, but I don't use it. <laughs> so I got, okay, here are these two great beings I really respect. What's up? Is, is there kind of one type of enlightenment? <laughs> kind of 
Starbucks and Tim Hortons enlightenment? Or, <laughs> I don't know. So it kind of sort of had my question all ready for Lompo Liam. So I, I went into his room and Venerable Tanio were translating and I asked them, you know, so do you, you know, what I asked them basically, I said, do you think it's true this story of Ajahn Chah and the palmist and, and the anger? You know what his answer was? Didn't say anything. <laughs> Didn't say a thing. Oh, come on. <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, Man, it's just speculation. He said, well, this wasn't going to go there. And he didn't need to go there for me. Didn't feel like he had to give an answer or whatever. And I thought, well, yeah, okay. That's a teaching. Not the one I expected. Because I was into speculation and, and, and such like. So around free will, the whole question of free will really arises in Western culture because the assumption of self. And once you make that su- assumption, then you have to answer that question. Whereas this, is, it's dependently originated. And that if the response of a human being is dependently originated, and there is no delusion in that human <coughs> being's expression, then the response is appropriate. As silence, as compassion, as active, as not active, depending on the character. So the person you know, might make a mistake, in, in judgment, but it would never be from delusion, that kind of thing. So a different take on it than, than Western, that, that conundrum they get into about free will. Yeah, modern neurophysiology sort of supports the notion that there would be some... Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. Yes? So then... When you talk about intention, how we always say just make the intention. Yes. But not to think that there is a self making that intention. It's it's only because conditions have a role have have arisen so that the making of the intention is necessary. Yeah. Is necessary and occurs. But it's not because there is someone making that Exactly. Yeah. And in the beginning, you have you know, in, in the beginning when you start, you you can only do that theoretically. It's still a me doing it. But you get to a point where in your practice, there's that that do nothing. And and that's that's like that's where there's no comma, no good comma, no bad comma, when there's no intentionality from a sense of self. And that is very very refined. But I think as a meditator, you do get to that where you, you know, you're really confused. Okay, get on the breath. Come on. Stay here. Da, 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 and, you, and your mind settles. And then you, you, you're really curious about the doer, right? The doing, the doer. And you say, do nothing. And very hard. <laughs> very hard to do nothing. But you get there and do nothing. And the whole sense of intentionality becomes the object of awareness. Because now your mind has more in, in a kind of that basic urge to do something. But you can't do that in the beginning. You have to kind of lay it out for yourself. But it becomes more and more refined. So they say it's the kama that goes beyond kama. I try not to overthink it because, you know, we even talk about you create the conditions, right? Yeah. Let's create, make the intention to create the conditions. And then, of course, okay, and that you're able to create those conditions because conditions have arisen for you to create, right? And then you think, this is stupid, right? Like now yeah, it's too much. End again. Yeah, so yeah. But I think the, the inquiry into intentionality becomes a, it's not a thinking inquiry, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a sense of the kind of urge to do yeah. is yeah. a kind of restlessness. Yeah. yeah, and you become curious about, just naturally, because that's where the dukkha is now. The dukkha is no longer that you're getting angry or you're frightened and so on. It's much more subtle, but it's still, there's still some tension there. There's still some wanting, and you, and you look at that. So it becomes more and more and more refined. And that means that the awareness is more and more still. More and more still. Any other? Itza? I, I haven't meditated in the past three, years, three days. Uh-huh. And I felt guilty and then more guilt and more guilt. It didn't make me meditate, though. Uh-huh. <laughs> I expected that if I say uh, guilt feel this way, that I actually sit down and meditate, but I didn't. And then I, when you were talking uh, this morning, I realized that at the same time as I was saying, you know, guilt feel this way, I actually 
was dealing with the eye and reinforced the eye uh -huh. every day. So I felt more guilty. I felt more guilty. Yeah. At the same time, I used the theory of saying, you know. You used the theory of not self to create a self. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so live and learn, right? So, so like, you know, it's such a simple language, it's like this, and yet we corrupt it through this self-view and so on. So I suggest, don't meditate for one more day, <laughs> and really look at guilt. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's <laughs> because I was wondering, am I really looking at guilt? Yes. Am I just... This, uh, what I learned. Because if you really look at guilt, then you're meditating. You stop. And guilt is like this. Then you're meditating. No, I wasn't even sitting down. Like, yeah. I was doing all kinds of important things. Yeah. And yeah, that's that, that low-level rumbling in the mind <laughs> that we have to awaken to. You, you, you have to really learn to say, so what is it? That kind of stopping and, and being conscious of it. Otherwise, it can just, yeah, 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 <laughs> it goes on and on and on in consciousness. That, like, say, Thich Nhat Hanh's different methods of stopping, like ringing a bell or, or doing gatas, and that's quite clever. Just, just get, get us all to, it. what's happening? We don't do that at the monastery because we're more interested in getting the work done. <laughs> yes. In the last uh, day or two, I have the experience of reacting to something and setting something in motion. And as I'm listening to you today, I realize that I have an anxiety about it because I realize that I've created the conditions for something. Just, you know, I've started the wheel turning. And the anxiety is, of course, that I want to fix it. Mm -hmm. I want to unturn the wheel. Yep. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, do I just stop and let it run? Do well, you can, two things. If you can fix it, fix it. But usually you can't. Or let's say, let's say you can't, okay? Option B. <laughs> then, then the worry is trying, to, what, what, what does the worry do? It tries to rewind, right? back it up with the, the arrow that goes this way on your screen and rewrite the script. And then if you can rewrite the script, it'll come forward to now and everything will be hunky-dory. And that's what it tries to do because the, the, the unpleasantness of that decision, say, and the consequence of that, that unpleasantness is so hard to take the mind either worries about consequences or tries to rewind and change the whole storyline. Or tries to justify it. Or justify it, yeah. So, exactly. Those. So, where the challenge is, is to feel the, the unpleasantness of it. And own it, but not identi self-identify with it. So, let's so take responsibility, mea culpas and all that kind of stuff. But the very unpleasantness of this decision is very hard on the heart. So what we do is we run to thought. Because mm -hmm. thought is, is not... It, it, you know, it's much nicer to hate yourself than to actually feel the unpleasantness of making a, a wrong decision. It's very, very uncomfortable. But if we, if we say, no, what's it really like now? Before I justify it, go to the future, go to the past. Right now, what's it really, really like? That takes a lot of courage or trust or patience or whatever to let it be fully conscious. And that's where the desire arises. The desire is to get away from the unpleasantness of that, and that trips off into thinking, past or future. So you want to get there before you trip off. So, so identify the mood, and then don't go to thought, but try to say, okay, what's it really like? Come on, this is the result, and then wait. And in the waiting, these things become conscious. They're very uncomfortable, but what you're doing is letting go of the desire to change that which you really can't change. And then you do something appropriate. And you also register in your own mind, okay, 
this is the consequence of that. I'll try to be more careful in the future. So you program your mind around these things. When I do this, I get that. So dependent origination is helps intentionality to make proper intentions in the future so that you don't get into this situation again. You know? so, but, but only by feeling the pain. Right? It's like you really feel the pain. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it wants to go to self-hatred or justification. No, you, 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 know, you do the burning, like Rumi's, Rumi's burning. And it's very humbling. It's a very humbling kind of experience. And some of the ego dies with it, right? And then it, it'll be all right. You know, it, it, it works its way out. And then there's more love because now you're not hating yourself. You're feeling that. And, and that really opens the heart to love. When, you, when, you're, when you're humbled by your own frailties or limitations or dumb, dumb moves that you've made, that humility is not self-disparagement. It's a kind of lessening of ego, and, and, and it leads to deep compassion. Through That's what I found, at least, you know, through the painfulness of it. So if I've, say, like for me, where I've really got burned is I've, I've taken a third-party story about someone else and believed it and ran with it and blamed them, and I was wrong. And I think we've all had that. It's a horrible, horrible feeling, right? Because, you know, people trust me, I'm a teacher, and so on. And then I've, then I've said something, and I didn't look at the information, and I got misinformed by the passion of a third person, and I bought into it, and then, oh, and, the, and, the, and it's a horrible, horrible feeling. But if I just stay with it and say I'm sorry, I'm better at it, much better than I used to be, but say I'm sorry, but I really feel the pain, you know, this is, this is what you do, this is when you're unkind or whatever, that really deepens the love of the heart. But if I don't go with the pain, then I just feel guilty or I distract. Like guilt is not really recognizing things. It's more like creating something around them, creating a self around them. That's the way I work with it, yeah. All right.